Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, they've been going strong for more than 40 years, ever since the first gig in Vancouver, all the way back in 1980. Well, 5440 remain one of Canada's best loved alt rock bands. And I chat with lead guitarist David Gann about a packed summer schedule for them and a new album due out this fall. Parliament has wrapped up for the summer, by the way, and Global's chief parliamentary correspondent, David Aiken, joins me to talk about a tough session for the Trudeau government, rumors of a cabinet shuffle, and what all parties will be looking to achieve between now and September. But first, we begin in Dauphin, Manitoba, where the RCMP today revealed the names of the 16 seniors killed in that devastating minibus crash near the town of Carberry last week. The group was on a day trip to a casino when the vehicle collided with a semi-trailer while crossing the Trans-Canada Highway. CJOB's Richard Cloutier has been in Dauphin all day. He shares his stories about a community grieving, the lives lost, the lives they lived, and how they're coming together. In quite the day, uh, we found out both about the names of the victims uh, in that horrific bus crash near Carberry, Manitoba last week as they were released today in Dauphin along with the stories of who was lost. And we learned today that the submersible that we had hoped beyond hope would be found with the, with those on board the five alive uh, was in fact the debris of that was found on the ocean floor not far from the Titanic. It's believed um the results of a catastrophic implosion. We'll talk about that as uh, in this first hour. But first, a quick question for you, because this might be a little lighter uh, way to start off the show. Ontario today announced they're bringing back cursive writing in elementary schools. As of next year, Education Minister Stephen Lecce said it's about more than just teaching students how to sign their own name. Um, is that a good idea? Should cursive writing be mandatory in this time of chat GPT and, and phones and texting and computers and so on? Do we need to know how is penmanship still worth it? Let me know. One eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight is our text line. One eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. We'll talk about that tonight. A confession: my handwriting is abysmal and always has been. So I was happy as can be when computers came along to relieve me of having to re- read even my own chicken scratch uh, over time. But we'll talk about that tonight. Let me know who you are and where you are. But let's start in Dauphin, Manitoba, where a little more than a week after a devastating minibus crash that claimed the lives now of 16 seniors from that community of just over or just around 8,000 people. Today, we learn more about the names, the faces, the stories behind those who died. Manitoba RCMP released the names of the 16 seniors today. One by one, officers and family members placed giant photos of the victims on easels. They range in age from 68 to 88. One was a former school teacher. Uh, they were all loved. They were pe- grandparents, parents, and great-grandparents, sisters, brothers, and friends. And the impact on the community is hard to describe. Superintendent Jeff Asmundson says the deaths have taken their toll on the community. There's been a cloud over this community since the collision occurred. We lost 16 people who were mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, grandparents, whose decades of contributions helped make this community what it is. Needless to say, it was an emotional day for all involved. This was one of the first times that everyone had been in one place at once. Um, Wayne Olson, a community minister for the Church of Christ in Dauphin, and one of the organizers of a memorial service taking place this evening, says those who died will always be remembered. 
they will always be in our hearts and they have moved us and shaped us in some way and we want to we want to celebrate that that as well and give people a chance to remember and to to share the joy of knowing them a reminder, the bus was carrying that group of seniors from Dauphin, roughly 160 kilometers to the town of Carberry, where there was a casino. They were on a day trip. It's something that uh, they obviously talked about. We spoke to members of the community last week who enjoyed these trips. And the crash happened when that bus they were in was crossing the Trans-Canada Highway on Highway 5, coming from Dauphin. They were only about 10 minutes away from the casino when this tragedy happened. According to dashcam video and witness accounts, police have determined that the truck had, in fact, the right of way. And at this point in the investigation, they're still trying to figure out exactly what it, what went wrong. The driver of the semi-truck was released from hospital last week. The driver of the bus, who was also the co-owner of the company, uh, survived the crash, but he remains in hospital. Richard Cloutier, co-host of the news on 680 CJOB, Chorus Station in Winnipeg, has been in Dauphin again today. Richard, thanks so much. Been good to talk to you again. Thanks so very much. Yeah, I mean, just watching watching it, I mean, I think within the community, many people must have known who everyone was, but to see it all together, to see all those photos together, to see all the photos is a reminder of just what an incredible uh, loss of life there's been and, and what an impact it'll have to lose so many senior members of this community all at once. You know, listening to you for the first few minutes and, you know, the whole idea of bringing back cursive writing, and I was just thinking that today, you know, it was like a handwritten letter a handwritten note um, through those pictures and in some cases through the words that the superintendent read. And I was thinking, you know, this is the beginning of a process um, because largely for uh, those outside this community, uh, this has been an unknown. And now we start to get to know in a bit of a way um, the lives of, of these 16. And, you know, I think of... Um, the superintendent who uh, we interviewed this afternoon, and it was pretty emotional because, you know, he's head of this district out of Dauphin. And he talked about, you know, it's his job to get up there and to do this. And I think there have been so many leaders that have come to fore within the church this evening at the, the joint uh, gathering that they had at the local Ukrainian church within uh, the RCMP, the first responders, the political leaders here, all, you know, have really kind of risen to the occasion. But, you know, Ben, I think of that superintendent and, you know, I said, well, how's the last week been for you and, and members of, of the squad here? And he said, Richard, um, when this all went down, we were having a gathering at the district headquarters here in Dauphin to celebrate 150 years of existence of this detachment. And then the call started to come in, the texts, and then we knew, you know, the ca catastrophe that was at hand here, south of here. And this has been nonstop and dealing with families. And as they were bringing those photos out in many cases it was police officers in other cases families you know what a way to start to kind of getting us to know some of the lives that were lived here and and important for people to know that um you know we have a couple that died um together yeah. and we have um louis brecher who many of the locals have said what a personality he was that um, at the local uh, recreation center, the adult uh, 
Active Living Center, it, he was in charge of putting together the bingo tickets and some of the draw tickets, and he insisted they be stapled a certain way. And, you know, it, it kind of, um, and would rib people if it wasn't done the, the proper way. And then other trips that people would take together, not just the Carberry, but to trips to the casino in Winnipeg. And just how slowly people are starting to talk about the lives that were lived here. And yeah, there's going to be grieving, um, and it'll take a while for this community to recover. But today was a big step in that direction. Yeah, just looking at the photos, thinking about how much history, how much memory mm. in that community was lost on that bus. And, and then thinking of the things they did. I mean, they were obviously retired. They had you know, devoted their lives to this community. There were teachers and so on. Tell me a bit about some of the stories. You mentioned the couple, of course, uh, some of the stories that stood out to you today about, about who was on that bus and the lives they lived. Yeah, and one of the big themes here is commitment to the church. And uh, one of the district politicians spoke in Ukrainian. And that just touched so many people because the power of the church here, you know, sometimes I think in our urban lifestyle, we underestimate it. But in this small town, um, a lot of Ukrainian heritage here and some of the people on the bus were Ukrainian and um, would take a lot of pride in their baking, in their Christmas baking. And those are the types of stories of, uh, of, of that commitment um, not just to each other, but to the church. And that's why you saw this gathering this evening at the local, uh, one of the local Ukrainian churches. This is a historic community when it comes to, you know, the Ukrainian settlement in Canada. And interestingly enough, the hotel I'm staying at, the two of the maids here are from Ukraine. And right. when I was here last week, started to talk to them about this community. And they said to me, how welcoming the church has been to them and how welcoming people like the people that were on the bus have been to them. Because today we heard about, um, about Babas and great Babas and uh, how much uh, service and community service a lot of these people uh, did. And I'm also found out that, you know, when you look at the photos, there's only two men there. Yeah. Um, three of the women who died and I'm, I'm don't know which three, but you know, they had all recently lost their husbands and you know, part of what the reality of our world is that women of this generation still outlast the men. Right. So um, for them, for, for a lot of these women going to the local bingo, going uh, to the casino is an outing because They've faced so much in their lives recently. And, and so that, um, that struck me. And the other thing we're going to hear about in the days ahead is that bus driver who remains in hospital, single dad, right. and um, struggling, struggling to raise a 16-year-old. And there are people rallying around him and taking people by the side and saying, please, you know, we have to think and honor the dead, but we also have to think of those remain in hospital and and those that are hanging on who are in critical condition. And so, Richard Clute, yeah, this is ca this is catastrophic. But my point here is there could be more to come. 
Richard Cloutier is co-host of the news on 680 CJOB Courses Radio Station in Winnipeg. He's been in Dauphin again today. Uh, it was an emotional day there. They revealed the names of the 16 seniors who had died in that bus crash last week, including the photos, the large photos were placed on easels. There were families didn't speak, but they did release statements about who was lost, the lives that had been lived. Richard, I was thinking about what you were saying, how that community, which has a large Ukrainian heritage in it, had welcomed those fleeing war. And it feels like perhaps there's something to learn from those who've had to survive that in this time of need or this time of of um, you know of mourning in in Dauphin right now. You know, there are the, the community seems to have, have come together, but it's going to be difficult and they'll have to be there for those who survived as well, because there'll be a long recovery for them. Yeah, there will be. Uh, but they also talked about um, the road ahead and that uh, that road is going to be um, private funeral services, uh, 16 funeral services here, and uh, a local um, funeral company that is pretty overwhelmed in dealing with this. Um this weekend, there's graduation, and early next week, there's graduation ceremonies here, and they right. want to focus in on that. And then there's a big uh, country music festival that starts at the end of the month. And, you know, in speaking with some of the people to talk a little bit about, you know, about some of the, the, the people that we we are starting to learn about the 16, you know, uh, Donna Shudra, who um, uh, used a scooter. <laughs> And, and got into arguments with the locals uh, and the local police here about, you know, using that scooter and being able to, you know, what kind of laws to follow. So, the, you know, the funny right. stories involved in this. The characters, so, the lives lived, yeah. Absolutely, characters. And, and I think, you know, in talking with them that, you know, a, a, a tremendous weight has been lifted off of the shoulders of many here simply because there was a big group hug today. And yes, there'll be the ongoing mourning as the community has these funerals as well. But there's also a sense now that, um, yeah, we've got that next step in the grieving and the mourning process. But I always am reminded, and I think we all, you know, have been to funerals before, and there's um, all the attention one gets during this process of the grieving but it's going to be weeks and months from now when yeah. people are really feeling that loss. And, and I sometimes fast forward to this and, and remind myself, you know what, um, this fall, time to come back to Dauphin and, and check in on those folks. Um, yeah. Because I think right now they understand and they're kind of, you know, uh, the, there's the dance of wanting to share those stories. And some of the relatives after the ceremony, I'm in the parking lot, and and they wanted to reach out and one couple was holding one of the giant photos and it was kind of like thank you for being here thank you for telling our story and and you know those are the moments where you share those moments you don't want to pry but they're glad that others are starting to learn about the wonderful lives that we're living yeah, I know it always is difficult and it sounds cliched, but in so many ways, and this is one of those examples where one really has to focus on the lives lived, not the way they died. Um, you know, Absolutely. as public and as national as it as it's been for the community, clearly it's 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 a time to try to to remember what was good about the lives that were lived and the characters that were there and all the things they loved about life and life and often. Yeah, and and you know, together, 
at that senior center, um, together going on trips, together sharing more laughs, and at times tears. But many of those people that were on that bus, um, they will be remembered for the lives and the contributions to this community. And frankly, that brings a smile to my face. Well, Richard, uh, thank you so much. Take care of yourself as well. I know these are always emotional uh, places to be, um, but you know, you sound like you sound like you've made some, you've uh, made a difference there. That's great. Thank you so much for for sharing it with us tonight. Great to talk with you. Thanks so very much, Ben. This morning, an ROV or remote operated vehicle from the vessel Horizon Arctic discovered the tail cone of the Titan submersible approximately 1,600 feet from the bow of the Titanic on the seafloor. In consultation with experts from within the Unified Command, the debris is consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. U.S. Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Mauger there this morning. Uh, again, a catastrophic event was, they believe, what happened to the missing submersible, the Titan, uh, and the confirmed the deaths as well of the five people on board, which brought to an end a days-long search and hope against hope that there had been enough oxygen for uh, the five on board to survive if something, if they had lost uh, power or something along those lines. But it now is believed that there was a catastrophic implosion at some point. They're not sure exactly when, but of course it was lost. They lost contact uh, with the uh, with the submersible not that long after it was began its dive down uh, some 3,800 meters towards the Titanic. It was found uh, nearby, not that far, about 490 meters from the bow of the Titanic on the ocean floor. Here again is Rear Admiral Mauger. This is a incredibly unforgiving uh, environment down there uh, on the seafloor, uh, and uh, the debris is consistent with a catastrophic uh, implosion of uh, the vessel. Now, on board, of course, uh, were Stockton Rush, the founder and chief executive of Ocean Gate Expeditions, the company that operated the submersible. He was piloting renowned French maritime expert Paul-Henri Nargalet, who had been on more than 35 dives to the Titanic wreck site. He was a expert at this, as well as respected around the world uh, as as both an explorer and a diver. Uh, first-timers, British explorer and billionaire Hamish Harding, and, and a father and son, uh, British-Pakistani businessman Shahazda, Shahzada, rather, Dawood, and 19-year-old Suleiman Dawood. Ocean Gate paid tribute to them today, saying these men were true explorers who shared a dis- distinct spirit of adventure and a deep passion for exploring and protecting the world's oceans. Uh, a friend of Narjolais uh, named Matthew Tullock uh, spoke late today, and he said that Paul-Henri had spoken about the possibility of something like this happening. And he's even said, I've heard him say multiple times on his own, if there were ever a catastrophic implosion, you would never even know about it. You know, it wouldn't be like, you know, you see in movies where, you know, things start to creak a little bit or something like this, right? It would be nanoseconds. Stefan Williams is a professor at the Australian Centre for Field Robotics at the University of Sydney, and he joins us now. Uh, thanks so much for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks, Ben. It's good to be here. I was reading something that you wrote earlier in the week, and, and I think you referred to what we believe has happened as the worst-case scenario, that there was a catastrophic failure to, its, to the vessel's pressure housing. Now that we're hearing more about what happened, what do you now? What can you now make of what have, could have gone so catastrophically wrong during, we believe, I guess, the descent? 
Yeah. So my understanding is they were about an hour and 45 into a two-hour descent. So they would have been reasonably close to the seafloor. Um, there are reports that concerns were raised as far back as 2018 with the, the design and, and I guess the third and the testing of this particular um, vessel's pressure housing, which is a composite design made of titanium uh, end caps and uh, carbon fiber tube. Um, questions I understand have been raised about you know, the thoroughness of the design, the, the validation and the testing, and, and the potential for this carbon fiber to, to delaminate over um, multiple dives as you get the pressure cycling. So small imperfections may have allowed water ingress, and that would have then eventually led um, to a, a sizable imperfection, which, as we've seen, um, appears to have resulted in, in the catastrophic um, failure of that uh, pressure vessel. Right. Similar to some, what we see in sort of investigations to, into aircraft disasters, right, where a tiny something tiny all of a sudden gives way, and mm. what would have happened? Yep. Because of course the pressure at that depth is is hard to describe. Mm. So at uh, three thousand eight hundred meters under sea floor, the pressure is there is about three hundred eighty times atmospheric pressure. So it's an enormous amount of pressure um, on the outside of this pressure vessel. Um, if it had, if it did fail, or when it did fail, um, there would have been essentially an enormous crack in the, the pressure vessel, which would have opened up. The water then would have uh, entered the pressure vessel and equalized um, from the one atmosphere inside the pressure vessel to the 380 atmospheres outside. It would have been very quick. Um, why there are reports that the U.S. Navy does have acoustic recordings um, that. They believe they may have heard um, this uh, implosion event, and so they'll be able to get very precise timing as to when the pressure vessel itself failed. I have heard reports also that um, there may be some evidence that the ballast weights um, may have dropped. Um, that may indicate that there was some um, sense that something was not working and that the crew would have been trying to get back to the surface um, before the failure occurred. Yeah, you mentioned in that same article that this this vessel did have monitors, right? That it did have monitors for the integrity of of the yeah. of the structure itself, and 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 perhaps uh, some of there would have been some alarm at at that stage. There would have been some warning, maybe. Maybe, yeah. And I think further investigation will be required to really try to piece together. You know, I don't know if we'll know ever know exactly what happened, but. Uh, to really try to come to the, you know, get as much information about uh, what's happened. I suspect they'll be using these remotely operated vehicles now to do visual inspections, to really characterize which component did fail. Um, they may make some attempt to salvage um, some of the, the pressure vessel or, or some other parts of the submersible to, to help them with the investigation. But all of that's going to be very challenging given the depths at which the, the debris field is, is now located. Because I, I would imagine what they would want to do is 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 bring those pieces back up to investigate, uh, to try to figure mm -hmm. out re, 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 recreate, to try to figure out or rebuild, to try and figure out where the where this this fault happened. Yeah. So if they did do have access to the, the pressure vessel components, then they can um, you know do some detailed investigation to see which elements of the housing failed, how the failures occurred. You know, if there is evidence of some delamination of the carbon fiber, for example that would give you a pretty good indication that that's, that's the component that, that has failed. And, of course, there'll be a, a big hole in 
some component of the pressure vessel, which will be pointing pretty squarely to, to where the thing actually failed. Now, we spoke to someone who'd been on the Titan twice, as a matter of fact, and went through sort of the, the safety routine and, and how, you know, the vessel was inspected each and every time. Uh, how would this have been? I mean, it's, it's hard to, because this is a one-of-a-kind structure, it's hard to understand what exactly could have gone wrong. There isn't anything else really to compare it to, but, uh, yeah. but it would have been inspected, I would have imagined, each time. I mean, you know... Th- even you know the, the the CEO of the company was on board piloting. They would have wanted to make sure that it was safe. They must something about the way it was built must have been flawed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so they would have done routine inspections and, and you know safety checks before putting the, the vehicle in the water just to make sure all the, all the components are are you know nominally in good working order. They would have um, had. Uh, routines for sealing the vehicle up and making sure that all the the O-rings and and the the bits that that are required to keep the pressure vessel integrity were checked. But at the end of the day, the pressure vessel itself would be within the frame of the vehicle. There would be um, foam and other flotation around it. So you you can't always investigate or uh, inspect every element of um, the pressure vessel itself. And if these are sort of small uh, microscopic uh, failures that are starting to grow that may not have been immediately obvious uh, on the surface. It could have been flaws within um, the pressure vessel itself that has ultimately led to the failure. Yeah, I know it's of no comfort, but of all the different scenarios that people were working through their minds this week, um, this one, as as tragic as it is, may have been the quickest. Uh, and I know that sounds could might sound a bit callous, but of all the other things that could have gone wrong, and if they weren't found and weren't rescued, uh, this one sounds like at least it what may have been quick. Yeah, I mean the suggestion that the ballast weights were dropped suggests that that maybe they were aware something was going wrong, but the the final implosion would have been a very fast event. Um, so yeah, it's obviously no comfort to the the, the family and, no. and loved ones of those who've lost their lives. But um, but yeah, it's, it's it almost certainly would have been quick in in the end. I'm I'm struck by the similarity of the Titanic disaster itself, where the captain was repeatedly warned about ice ahead of his ship, and yet he steamed at full speed into an ice field on a moonless night. And many people died as a result. And for a very similar tragedy where warnings went unheeded to take place at the same exact site, uh, I, I think it's just astonishing. It's really quite surreal. Director James Cameron there, of course, who himself has been down to see the Titanic more than a few times and is part of the submersible community, talking about some of the warnings over the years about Titan and the whole project uh, that Stockton was 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 creating here. Uh, Stephen Williams is a professor at the Australian Centre for Field Robotics at the University of Sydney, and he's with us this half hour talking about what went wrong uh, with the Titan. A debris field found this morning. It's believed the vessel suffered a catastrophic implosion. All five people on board uh, were killed. Uh, Stephen, there are going to be a lot of questions asked now about what was happening here. This vehicle was carrying passengers. They were paying a hefty sum to be part of this. Uh, clearly, the, the company wasn't paying attention to guidelines because they found uh, that they were too strict. But what lessons to learn here? Yeah, I think I mean lessons are, are, are I guess, going to going to be that that we do need more 
a little bit more re- regulation, obviously. And I think as a matter of principle, the company really should have been seeking independent assessments of their um, their designs and, and the construction, particularly in light of, of those reports that, that suggest they, they were getting some warnings and, and you know, people questioning the, the potential for a catastrophic event like this. What might this do then broadly? Uh, because I know this is not the only uh, vehicle going, the only vessel going down to see wrecks and so forth. I mean, this is happening around the world. I gather, though, that, and I think James Cameron touched on it today in that interview with ABC, that, that it is relatively well regulated elsewhere, that there haven't been any accidents. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, we've been uh, you know using some submersibles similar to this since the 1970s, and there have been relatively few um, you know tragic events like we've seen today. There have been deaths associated with uh, submersible deployments, um, but you can sort of expect as as more of these vehicles come online, um, you know, hopefully we won't we won't see a repeat, and I expect that a lot of uh, companies and organizations who deploy these sorts of vehicles will be. You know, doing some thorough inspections and and you know really thinking about um, the design and the, the maintenance and the safety aspects associated with uh, deploying and, and managing these vehicles. Right. I, I mean, Ocean. It wasn't as if Ocean Gate Expeditions were doing this. Uh, you know, on the QT, this was a very publicized, very well known. There'd been media reports about it. I guess. Mm-hmm. For, for people outside of this world, I guess there are no specific regulations about who can and cannot carry uh, people down as far as 30. You know, if you think about it, if someone built a rocket and said, I'm going to take people to space and the rocket had never been tested or never been certified, mm-hmm. you'd start asking some questions. Yeah. But it feels like that's exactly what happened here. Yeah, I guess it's all. I mean, there's a further complication in that that they're largely operating out of state waters as well. So they're in in sort of the high seas, there are regulations with, you know, deploying equipment into these sorts of areas and, and how ships operate and things like that. But but this sort of submersible is, is relatively rare. I'm not sure how how or even who would be enforcing uh, the regulations around this sort of activity. So, you know, a company like this that may have some commercial pressure to be starting to operate, um, may, you know, just forge ahead and say, look, we think we've got this, we've done the designs, we're confident in in the ability of these vehicles to work. Um, you know, they may just push ahead in in the interests of accelerating uh, the business. And and you know, I think there will be some serious questions asked now, and people will have to stop and and consider what happens going forward. And the flip side of this is now the whole world has been focused on this sort of activity, and there are probably a lot of people looking at it and going, you know, thinking about. The, the possibilities and, and you know, there are a lot of people who are interested in having that kind of first-hand experience of these sorts of environments. Right. I mean, there's no question questioning Stockton Rush's um, idealism about about investigating the ocean and his commitment to doing it. And he was on his own vessel, mm-hmm. so you know he was committed yeah. to it uh, enough to 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 go down with it. Uh, and Paul Henri Nargelle was was a you know one of the most renowned uh, deep sea experts around the world, I, I gather. So these were not people who didn't know the risks of this. Um, it's just, I guess, when you look at, at hindsight is easy, right? But when you look at it from yeah, the outside and some of the things that they were showing about, you know, game controllers and buttons, and you think, wow, why would you go down in something like that? Um, I mean, I think a lot of the people are fascinated with this sort of thing. And we're seeing, you know, a growth in both 
um, deep sea tourism and also space tourism. You know, people are interested in these extreme environments and exploring them and, and you know, experiencing them firsthand. Um, if you look around at, at scientific exploration and, and, you know, research and development and, and industry applications, people use a lot of robotic platforms. And it's much easier to build small pressure vessels that can house um, the electronic systems, the control, all those sorts of things that are on a robot. Um, they're typically much smaller. You need a, quite a large volume to, to house people. So building reliable robots is, is in a lot of ways easier. But I suspect there will always be that kind of appetite to, to be there in person and, and experience it, despite the fact that we can collect some really um, you know, amazing footage and, and data um, using uh, remotely operated vehicles. Yeah. I mean, again, five people have lost their lives and their families grieving tonight. And I think that's probably what we should be focusing on. I guess the questions will come later, but there have been a lot of questions about what exactly happened here and, and, and why and, and how it could have been allowed to to gone ahead. Uh, Stefan Williams, thank you so much for your expertise on this. I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. I asked you a question before the break, uh, which was, there is a specific group in this country that has the highest rate of poverty uh, amongst any group in Canada. Uh, Janet and St. Albert said baby boomers, and that's that's a, a good guess. But it's actually, and this is a strange one, it's actually working age Canadians, single working age Canadians. So 18 to 64 without a, without a spouse. Uh, is is who it falls into. Now, that's a broad group of people. But when you think about it, uh, these are often people who have jobs. Uh, they're caught in an economy which isn't, you know, where low-wage economy has been really difficult of late. And it's really hard to get out of that cycle. Uh, a few months ago, or a few weeks ago, rather, we spoke with Terry Smith-Fraser. She's a Halifax uh, nurse's assistant and grandmother who now lives in a van. Uh, she couldn't afford, once she was renovicted from her apartment, she couldn't find anything around Halifax that she could afford or made sense. She still has a job, so she was sort of tied to the community as well. And so she has a full-time job, benefits, but is now living in a vehicle. Here's what she had to say. There really isn't anything affordable in Halifax at all right now. I'm not sure how other people are doing it. Uh, a van became basically my only option at the time. You know, I work in healthcare, so I have a good job. I make fairly decent money. I'm a single person and I couldn't even apply for the apartments because I didn't make enough. That's the problem. It's when you're on one income, um, it's really difficult these days. New research shows that adults between 18 and 64 make up nearly a quarter of Canadians living below the poverty line and almost half of those living in what is considered deep poverty. This is a report from the Community Food Centres of Canada. It included focus groups with those really feeling the squeeze of this affordability crisis, saying how in low-wage sectors of the economy, self-employment, temp jobs, part-time work have become the norm. And that means insufficient hours, reduced autonomy, fewer benefits, limited punch pensions, of course, and fluctuations in pay. Add that all up, and it's a cycle that's really hard to escape. What could be done to help? Sherry Hanley is Director of Policy and Community Action at the Community Food Centres Canada, and she joins me now. Thank you so much, Sherry. Thanks for having me today. This is a group that we um, seems oft forgotten, uh, when it, certainly when it comes to policy and politics and so on. But you found some pretty, I mean, these are pretty staggering numbers for, for single working age adults in this country. That's right. Yeah, we, we did some focus groups across the country and we looked at, at the data of people between the ages of 18 and 64 working or on social assistance. And the numbers were staggering in terms of poverty, 
one in five are living below the poverty line. And of the Canadians that are living in deep poverty, 50% of them are working age singles and three times higher than the national average in terms of their poverty rates. What's driving it? Because I mean, I, I suspect there are many, many factors at play here. None of them new, but as all as everyone is struggling with affordability, those left with a single income, sometimes a very low income, trying to find shelter, pay for food, all the things that you have to pay for to you know to sustain yourself, become exacerbated if you're doing trying to do it by yourself on a low salary. That's right. So the, the, one of the main pieces is is one income in this economy and the cost of living. But I think what we really found through the discussions we had with folks and the research we did was that the, the current labor market and our social safety nets are, are out of sync. So the labor market that we see today, you know, it's evolved to, to what it is over the past 20 plus years or so, is really one where the jobs that are out there today for people are are increasingly part-time, contract or temporary um, you don't necessarily have benefits. You don't have stability in the shifts you're getting. Uh, if you're sick, you might not have sick leave. Um, so it's really changed in terms of stability. And then for folks who've fallen down on their luck, whether they, you know, aren't making enough money or if they've lost their job because of that part-time nature, uh, most people fall into social assistance instead of employment insurance. They're no longer eligible because they don't have enough hours for employment insurance. And they fall into a social assistance program. When they were initially developed, they were developed uh, as meager on purpose to incentivize people to go back to, to work when the work was more generous. So you've got people living in deep poverty. Pretty much every individual on social assistance across the country is living in deep poverty. Right. And and of course, if you're on social assistance and you have uh, access to benefits and so on, there is it's a tough choice to go back to an insecure, low-paid, part-time job and give that up. That's that's exactly it. Every single person we spoke to who was on social assistance wants to be working. No one wants to be uh, living on social assistance. And and although you're living on social assistance, you know, on average between seven hundred and nine hundred dollars a month, depending on where you live, it's not really living with dignity or you're basically just surviving. But at least, you know, that that check is coming in and you do have health and dental benefits where the work that is out there, we've heard from many people who, you know, leave social assistance and they don't have regular hours or they don't have control over their hours. They might get two or three shifts a week, but they don't know if they have those same two or three shifts the next week. So they don't even, they can't even plan for the second or third job if they want to, or to, to leave and look for employment. There's additional costs like a phone, transportation, a uniform or things like that, that actually make, you know, the low wage, you know, short term type of work, not worth it in the long run. And yet, Sherry, when we look at the headlines these days, we hear about a hot job market, record record low unemployment, work everywhere. But that isn't the reality of, of, of the people you've been talking to for this who fall into this this category. No, it's it's not their reality. And I think, you know, there's there's lots of factors that, that speak to that. But what we're seeing from people who are coming through our food centers, 45 percent of people coming through food centers right now and food banks are single adults. The majority of working age singles, well, 47 percent are living in unaffordable housing. And so the, the jobs that are out there are not necessarily paying people enough to sustain what it costs in, in today's day and age. So uh, and we're also finding for some people, housing is a big driver in terms of um, how they spend their money. The first bill you normally pay is your, your housing. And for a lot of people, they may have to choose living further out in the country or the suburbs away from some of those jobs that might be available. So their transportation costs then make it a barrier to get to those jobs that might be available. Right. And from your focus groups, this is what you were hearing, that that essentially people that all these barriers are in the way. And it's very, very hard, it seems. And I think we this has been true for a very long time, but maybe exacerbated of late when all of us understand how much inflation and affordability have become issues in the past while uh, that it's very hard to get out of this cycle. 
It, it really is. And I think, you know, not only are we having people, you know, like the economic barriers, but people are really beat down, demoralized and feeling stigmatized. There's a stereotype out there that, that people who are living in poverty have done it to themselves. If you're in this age group, you know, like just go and get a job, you know, you're being lazy, get out there and do it. So people are really feeling stigmatized. They're feeling unacknowledged. They're feeling forgotten by government and they are working really hard. And if you're, if you're, you know, on a meager social assistance and surviving, you're working hard to survive. You know, your social assistance rates don't match what the rent is. You're standing in food bank lines. You know, you're you're struggling to to make any uh, end meet. And if you're working and and living in poverty, you're often working two or three jobs, or you know, working in you know, if you're in Toronto, you may be working in the Greater Toronto Area, coming into the downtown core, commuting for a long time to get into a job that's not paying you enough to survive. Uh, Sherry, this is a tough one because they have, this is a group. When you, when you look at politicians make, prom, make promises, they talk a lot, often talk about working families. They often talk about protecting seniors, making sure kids have dental care and so on. Very rarely do we hear about single working age adults. That's right. And, and I think this goes back to, you know, an assumption that certain groups are more deserving than others. If you think of families with children or seniors, you think, oh, let's let's help them out. They, they shouldn't live in po- poverty. And, you know, we're arguing that everybody should you know be able to live with dignity and to live above the poverty line. It's a real political football. A lot of people just think go and get a job and, and that's fine. But the realities today don't make it work for everybody. In this case, I mean, government programs would, could help, uh, but those are programs that, that are taxpayer funded, and that is always an issue when there are more programs being rolled out. There are already many programs out there. But what would you like to see as what do you think would be a suitable fix in the short term? Yeah, I think like, you know, the reality is there's 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 a longer term piece that needs to happen. And it's looking at, you know, our, our labor market and, and discussions between business and government in terms of, you know, how things are working in the labor market. But short term, I think we really need to step up and support people who are working age with targeted income. As you, you mentioned before, we've invested in families with children and seniors. And when they've done that through the, the Canada Child Benefit in 2016, it led to a 30 percent reduction in severe food insecurity amongst families and children. And when they introduced the, the guaranteed income supplement, it reduced food insecurity for seniors by 50%. So we're seeing 24% of working age singles living with food insecurity. So people not being able to afford food, they're skipping meals, and many, you know, actually being malnourished by, you know, not having enough to eat. So we're calling on the federal government to specifically invest in this group. Uh, through a Canada working age supplement. There's currently a Canada worker benefit, but it has an employment requirement. So it doesn't acknowledge folks who might have fallen out of the labor market, who need um, some funding to get by, but also to address those economic barriers they face to getting back into the labor market. How would the supplement work? So it's a tax benefit. So you would file your income tax and it would be based on your income and it would give anyone earning under $49,000 between three and $4,000 as a top up through the tax system. Because presumably, um, when you look at supports offered for seniors over the age of, you know, anyone, I guess we don't use the term seniors as much, but anyone over the age of 65, uh, if, if those are people are struggling through those adult years, uh, one would think that they're going to struggle even more in their senior years and they're going to need government assistance no matter what. So, uh, you know, why not try to nip it in the bud, so to speak? Well, that's right. Like, I I think we're really, we've got a whole generation of people who are not able to, you know, live a generous, healthy life. They're making decisions now on their actual health care in terms of skipping meals. And that's going to have some long term effects. A lot of people we've spoken to are not able to afford their medication or making decisions about, you know, skipping meals or, or not following dietary instructions from their doctors because the food costs too much to, you know, if they've got celiac or type 2 diabetes. 
So a lot of people are are, are compromising their health in terms of skipping meals and not being able to afford uh, their care. So yeah, you're going to have a lot of people living in poverty. And we know that poverty actually contributes to negative health outcomes and people not necessarily having savings or pensions to help them survive in their golden years. What, what I found most striking about this, I lived in, in China for a while, you know, in Beijing at the time, there was no social safety net. I mean, it was really, you know, you, you either make it or you don't. Yeah. And I, we also look at that and thought, I always used to look at that, this is about 10, 10, 12 years ago, thinking, you know, the way things are going, Canada is headed that way. And, and here we are, right? Here we are in a situation where when you fall through the cracks, or if something goes catastrophically wrong in your life, or if you've made a few bad decisions, Things can be really, really difficult now. And I don't think many people, I mean, I think a lot of people recognize how unaffordable things can be. But for some, I mean, this is, as you've pointed out, there are some really dire consequences and it's hard to pull yourself back out of it. Well, it's, that's right. Like if you're living like in Ontario, social assistance rates are $733 for a single person. And, you know, rent in Toronto is $2,200 for a one bedroom apartment. Minimum. So how are people making that work? If you can find one. Yeah. Yeah. If you can find one. And if you are finding one, you might be, you know, in an overcrowded situation. You might be living in an illegal rooming house. You might be living in a fire trap. (laughs) You know, there are lots of things like that going on. And, you know, we're finding more people in this age group spending way more than than they can on, on housing and being disproportionately represented in the shelter system. So it's really challenging. And if you think about day to day, I think like you and I and others go to the grocery store, you're thinking, wow. Things are getting expensive and you may make decisions, even though you're middle middle class, where people on social assistance with a fixed income that's not indexed to inflation that hasn't grown. How do you afford groceries? How do you afford your rent? And on top of that, what are the mental health implications? What are your your overall physical health of that? Uh, people are, are increasingly more isolated and feeling stigmatized. That was one of the big things we heard from people, even taking for granted being able to go and get a cup of coffee with a friend. Right. I, I guess, uh, lastly, what would you like people to walk away with this from? It's, I mean, you're, you're raising the alarm. I mean, that's, that's clearly what, yeah. what, what, what it was called and what you're trying to do here. I, I think, you know, two things. I really think that people need to stop and look at their friends and neighbors, people who are sitting next to them on the bus and realizing that everyone is not okay. There's a lot of things we can learn and we need to take care of everybody. So working age people are equally deserving as families with children or seniors to have support. Um, and the other thing I think is that we need to be letting our politicians know that politicians invest where they think the votes are and people think, you know, investing in family, children and, and seniors is, you know, where, where they'll get sympathy votes and everybody deserves investment and to live with dignity. And I think we need to let our politicians know that we expect that, that everybody should be living with dignity. Well, sure. Henley, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, writing, speaking of, uh, I'm not sure if there's a lot of cursive writing going on in Parliament Hill these days, but regardless, they're shut up, they've shut up shop for the, for the summer. MPs should be back in their writings tonight, or at least on their way there. Uh, Parliament wrapped up for the summer late Wednesday. Uh, from foreign interference, that file, we talked about it a lot on this show, to affordability issues, we've talked about that, a lot of that as well, to the handling of uh, the transfer of notorious murderer Paul Bernardo to a medium security prison, um, where apparently the public safety minister, Marco Mendicino, uh, had no idea it was happening because he didn't get the memo. It has been a tough stretch for the Trudeau government, a tough winter for the Trudeau government. There are rumors of an imminent cabinet shuffle to try to reset ahead of a return in September. By-elections this week, though, didn't exactly show support for the Liberals plummeting. Uh, Quite a few opinion polls sort of say people are looking for a change, but there were four by-elections that were held earlier this week, Uh, two of them in sort of liberal strongholds, two of them in conservative strongholds. The parties won what they were supposed to win, uh, but 
the Liberals actually increased their share of the vote. There were some reasons for that, but still, it's not as if their support is plummeting because uh, you'd think something like a by-election would be a perfect opportunity to test that, and it wasn't. So uh, given that, the Conservatives are going to have to assess their success under their newish leader, Pierre Polyev, as well so far. Uh, so what, what did we learn? over the last several months as Parliament uh, was in its winter session. What should we look out for this summer? Who better to talk about it than someone who's had a front row seat to all of it these last few months? Joining me now from Ottawa is David Aiken. He's Chief Political Correspondent at uh, Global News. Thanks for your time, David. Um, I know it's this is a break for you as well. You don't have to, you don't have to pay so much attention to the politicians. I know, but don't forget, I'm a political geek, Ben. I miss the politicians That's when right. they're not here. I enjoy all of that stuff. But you, you yes. watch, you, know, you watch reruns of Question Period. Watch, I'm sure. Yes, of course, yes. But they're every all the MPs are safely back in the ridings or en route to the ridings, and you can be sure you'll see them at a barbecue or a community picnic. Probably, if they're government MPs, probably handing out money. That generally is the job of a government MP during the summer. Is is here's a few bucks to fix up the legion. Here's a few bucks for some accessible doors at. Uh, your local curling rink, and so on. That's what right. government MP. Yeah, the summer slumber is it a slumber for everyone? Listen, from from just from watching it as it went by, it first of all it felt like a long session, and second of all, it felt like a really bruising one for the government, for the Liberal government. It did, and so this was the. I mean, let's just sort of take this session really stretching from the fall, and it was you know who's one of the new players on the scene, and that of course is the Conservative leader, the opposition leader, Pierre Polyev. And he brought with him a very different style than either Andrew Scheer or Aaron O'Toole before him. Polyev is a, is a pit bull. Uh, he's a very effective opposition MP. He was a very effective opposition MP even before he became the leader. And uh, he had the good fortune during his leadership campaign and then once became leader of zeroing in on the issue that is top of mind, affordability. You know, right. that's, that's exactly what it is. And then... You know, we've had issues around foreign uh, interference in our political system, which he's zeroed in on, and and that has caused uh, the government uh, a certain amount of grief. And then just in the last few weeks, this whole issue around Paul Bernardo and and his transfer to a medium security institution um, has also been uh, an easy target for for all the opposition parties. And to be honest, the, the governing liberals have not exactly made it difficult for the opposition to take some shots. They've really sort of tripped over their feet more than a few times, particularly in the foreign interference and definitely on the Bernardo story. It really hasn't been a very smooth functioning government. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I think has been remarkable to watch from, from afar is that a government that's been in power for many, many years now uh, seems to have forgotten how to tell it, how to control the narrative. I mean, no, that sounds very you know, journalistic or political. But what I found interesting about the last, specifically the winter session, was how effectively the Conservatives, and Pierre Polyev in particular, managed to drive the agenda day in, day out. It was what they were talking about is what everyone was talking about. And what the government was hoping to put forward was often falling falling flat. Right. Uh, I think that's that's quite true. And and in this case, it's not even the government trying to define the narrative. The, the two key things that the opposition have seized on that I think uh, uh, really will impact some personnel decisions going forward is on both the foreign interference file and the Bernardo file, we have cases where ministers are trying to say, I didn't see the memo. Bernardo gets transferred and the, the, the guy in charge of our prisons, Marco Mendicino, he didn't know about it until the day after it happened. The prime minister knew about it the day it happened. The prime minister got a heads up that it might happen a month before 
you know, at the end of the day, ministers weren't told. Now, on that particular file, I, I am in some sympathy with, with the government's line to say, do we really want cabinet ministers making decisions about the disposition of, of inmates in our system? That probably introduces some element of uh, partisan decisions, politicization, we probably want to avoid. But on the other hand, for every rule, there's an exception. And Paul Bernardo is not like any other prisoner. And how did the Minister of Public Safety not know? So the opposition was pretty clear. He shouldn't have been moved. I mean, it's 100 percent easy for them to, to, to go. And then on foreign interference, same thing. This is the Michael Chong matter that the, the mm-hmm. Ontario MP, you know, apparently targeted by the Chinese for some sort of harassment and ceases works of a memo that's supposed to get to the prime minister's desk. And it never did. The prime minister's I didn't see the memo. So that's not good. And again, ministers are in charge. The buck stops with them, whether or not they got the memo. And that's exactly the point that not just the conservatives, but the new Democrats made and the Bloc Québécois made. So um, that's tricky. And, and I mentioned this, particularly this thing about Bernardo and the foreign interference file. You know, one of the things we might see over the summer months, and it actually might be sooner than later, is we may see a cabinet shuffle. That yeah. That's the current hottest rumor here in Ottawa. And Mendocino, maybe he's one of those who might move to another portfolio. So, and that would be as a result of, have you lost sort of the strand on some of these important issues? Yeah, I mean, I think individually, each of them, the government may have been able, able to walk away from each one of those looking like maybe it was a one-off. But the idea that there's been this consistent, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't know. I didn't know. I mean, the idea that Paul Bernardo, whether you agree with you know the government stepping in on individual decisions about incarceration or not, the fact that they didn't know it was happening and then therefore couldn't explain it when it did, that was the problem, right? I mean, they needed to be out in front of this and they weren't. And I think that's what has really you know bedeviled uh, the Liberal government the past couple of sessions. Now, that said, so we talk about narrative. Now there's no House of Commons. There isn't that whole, there's no question period every day, right? There isn't the opportunity for the opposition to be able to hijack the agenda. Already today, it's it's day one of the summer recess, essentially. Both the New Democrats and the Liberals are out on their leaders' social feeds. Justin Trudeau's social feed, Justin Trudeau's YouTube. Trudeau's YouTube, he's got a five-minute video, if you really want to watch, all the good things we did. (laughs) And Jagmeet Singh's out there with something similar. And the two actually dovetail, because, of course, you know, we have this this agreement between the Liberals and the New Democrats. and, And they all go to affordability. So if the Liberals and New Democrats wanted to talk about what most Canadians think is a big issue, affordability, uh, dental care for kids. That is something that the New Democrats pushed. The Trudeau Liberals latched onto this idea. They've embraced it, even though the NDP are the ones that forced them into it. And that's that's an affordability issue. Just at the end of this session, a child care bill passed on affordable child care. This is sort of cement the idea of $10 a day child care. And guess what? The Conservatives actually voted in favor of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're going to hear New Democrats and Liberals talk about. Budget implementation bill passed. That included a one-time GST rebate. That goes to affordability. They're trying to win back some of the you know opposition of the bad guys by noting that you know the the, the Polyev conservatives did try a, a bit of a filibuster, but anyways, it was all about the budget. So the liberals did get a budget through; they got some things in the budget, and and a couple of things that both New Democrats and liberals backed, and that I think is what they will want to be talking about all summer long. That's yeah. it, right? Yeah. David Aiken is chief political correspondent at Global News. He's speaking to us from Ottawa. Uh, quickly, the by-elections this week. I mean, by-elections we take them all with a grain of salt, mm-hmm. but there is perhaps some 
cause for concern. They're going to have to fine-tune the way Pierre Poliev and the Conservatives are going at opposition right now because it can feel a little a little heavy on, like a little too much constant, constant attacking of the government. And, um, you know, they need to win over some middle ground people here who may be more sympathetic to the Trudeau government than they are. And that's always a difficult balance. Things turned out the way they were expected to. The by-elections were all in either liberal sort of strongholds or conservative strongholds, and the liberals won and the conservatives won. Okay, is that the end of the story? Maybe. We've heard a lot about how Justin Trudeau's popularity is drooping. Every opinion poll I've seen, his approval ratings are down, his, his popularity is down. Did we see that in the numbers? No, we, we did not see that on Monday's election results. How about the conservatives? bit more of a problem there. When conservatives fight amongst each other, Liberals benefit. And that, of course, goes right back to the whole split uh, post Mulroney, the Reform Alliance PCs. But it also goes to the issue around the People's Party of Canada. When people on the right are arguing amongst each other, liberals tend to benefit. And so the conservatives, as it comes back to conservative infighting, absolutely it was like mission number one is just pound Bernier and the PPC into the ground because they don't want this irritation on the right flank. But, you know, you, you asked about Voliev, maybe he needs to present a little bit of a different way. In this sort of, I don't know, little mini four elections, it was all about pounding Bernier into the sand. And that means that the party had to present itself as very hard right. So I guess that is something that conservatives have to think about. Uh, they're winning where they're already popular. They need to win where they haven't won before. And that was Shears challenge. That was O'Toole's challenge. And remember, both Sheer and O'Toole won the overall popular vote in both the 2019 and 2020 elections. But of course, with our system, you got to win seats and the Liberals vote was more efficient. And so the Liberals ended up with more seats. So that's, yeah, you know, we, we look at those four by-elections and believe me, the, the, the insiders, the people in the war rooms, they're dissecting these results going, well, what are you supposed to learn about this? And I think that's one of the things is how, how do we get Paul Yav to be more popular to voters, I think, in like Winnipeg South Center? Well, it makes perfect sense. The Conservatives don't need to run up the score in a place like Portage, Lisgar. They need to win in a place like Winnipeg South Center. I mean, that, that's, that's the I think whole so. point, right? Yeah. And they can't have they can't have things they can't have nomination nuttiness in ridings like Oxford where that that is that's that should be a slam dunk you know there, there'll be a little bad blood usually you Ben you probably had this experience like they are one offs uh, you know people say forget it I'm not voting conservative ever yeah. again and that lasts for like a for one election cycle and the motivated voters go out to vote in a by election right when the voting turnout is yeah. usually pretty down so the ones who are motivated to go are the ones who are who are upset right generally. yeah so so that was an interesting little wrinkle but you know what the day after you know we talked about the summer the day after those elections ele- uh, believe me liberals felt great they were yeah. high-fiving each other all over the place the foreign interference i i was at an event i've been at a couple events where there's lots of liberals that the liberal convention was held here in ottawa liberals all over the country show up and none of them really thought that the whole foreign election interference thing was was going to be a problem for them. And then they might be right, but this is their route about in the Mississaugas and the Surreys and the, uh, you know, Calgary's of the world. And they just don't see it resonating. And it it's may a- not. I come back to affordability is probably that's what people are talking about. And, and that's going to be the Liberal challenge, because right now it feels like between the Prime Minister and uh, Christia Freeland, the Finance Minister, Deputy Prime Minister, they don't really have a front person on affordability who sounds like they don't have a they don't live in a very have a much more lavish lifestyle than the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Christia Freeland definitely is not the best retail politician on the Liberal bench. The best retail politician is the Prime Minister himself. Yeah. But that said, you know, you remember how 
where many people might remember how Stephen Harper and Jim Flaherty were a great one-two punch through the uh, the fiscal crisis. Absolutely. And one of the reasons is Flaherty was a great retail politician. Yeah, he, he was really... a real kitchen table guy. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know what? So was Jack Layton, to be honest, yes. on the other side of the thing, Layton for the NDP. And in this case, Jagmeet Singh, I think, and it's important we talk about the NDP, just because they're the ones supporting the liberals right now. And a weak NDP is good for liberals, bad for conservatives. A strong NDP is actually good for conservatives, particularly in B.C., because they went on vote splits. Anyway, so so Jagmeet Singh, I don't think, has really found his footing talking about affordability. Christian Freeland is really... You know, she's the one who said uh, maybe you got to cut back uh, the Disney Channel on your streaming services yeah. and, and yeah. just miss the boat on that one. Yeah, but, Trudeau staying and, in expensive hotels again has been another story. That doesn't this work week, out. That doesn't and, help. No. And though Polyev lives in a taxpayer-funded mansion with like ten servants and True all enough. that, because he's the opposition leader, <laughs> he comes across as Mister Blue Collar, and he constantly is talking about. I don't know if you've noticed this, but here in Ontario, one of the top strategists for Doug Ford is a guy named Corey Tanike. Mm-hmm. You may know him. I I, him yep. I've worked with him and everything. And he has a really good phrase for the kind of voter that is Ford's base. And I'm very certain is Polyev's what they're aiming for Polyev. And that is people who shower at the end of the day, the working right. person. And that could be everybody from healthcare workers to, you know, uh, 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 truck drivers to people who are doing building. It's people who shower at the end of the day. And that Ford kept that kind of voter in mind. And that voter, many of whom are Members of private sector unions, I might point out, right? Yeah. young generally. And in fact, private sector unions, get this, endorse the conservatives in Ontario. That's Pierre Polyev's dream. If he can get private sector unions to endorse his candidacy, he will be off to the races like Ford. Public sector unions, a different thing. That's teachers, civil servants. I think it's very difficult. NDP territory. Yeah. That's NDP. You're right. NDP territory. But NDP, the New Democrats also should be pitching and winning private sector unionized voters. And in Ontario, at least, there's been a big disconnect there. And I'm not sure there is a real connection either, but sort of federally, some of the big private sector unions, Unifor is the biggest private sector union. Um, you know, nominally, they're, quote, anti-conservative but their members are listening to what Pierre Polyev has to say. And in a lot of cases, they like what the conservative leader has to say. That's something over the summer. Watch for Polyev as you see him go about to the kinds of community barbecues. He's going to be going to working people. And he's spending a lot of time in communities for first generation Canadians, uh, Filipino Canadians, Russian Canadians, uh, Sikh Canadians, Muslim right. Canadians, because that is another area that the conservatives federally need to rebuild some trust with those sorts of communities as well. Well, David, it sounds like you won't have QP to watch, but you'll have all those press releases about where the leaders are going to be to pay attention to. Lots to chew on. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Ben. Cheers. Well, Cursive Writing was a lot more popular back when this band first played their first gig. 5440 were formed in 1980. They played their first gig in Vancouver all the way back then. It's hard to imagine. 43 years later, they're still here. One of the country's most enduring bands emerging from the West Coast punk scene four decades ago. They had a lot of success in the 80s and the 90s. In 2003, Dave Genn, formerly of the Matthew Good Band, became their newest member. He's still called the new member. That was 20 years ago. Uh, here we are in the summer of 2023, and uh, they're, they have a busy summer. They're playing a whole bunch of dates this summer, including uh, this weekend in Calgary. They're going to be um, in uh, near Edmonton on 
Canada Day. And then there's a bunch of other concerts coming up across the country over the course of the summer. Be on the lookout for them. And there is a live album due out uh, in August. It was recorded live at the Alma Combo, that famous club in Toronto. And an album of new material out this fall. Uh, so if they happen to hit a venue near you, you'll get a mix of the classics, such as I Go Blind, Sheila, and Nice to Love You, with newer tracks, including 2019's Keep On Walking and, of course, material from the new album. They're in Newfoundland uh, now because they're playing there, and that's where I caught up with lead guitarist uh, David Genn. David, thanks so much for your time. Happy to be here. Uh, it must be. I mean, you're back out on tour. You have a pretty busy schedule this summer, don't you? Yeah, I mean, we work a lot every summer, generally playing most weekends from the beginning of June to the end of September. Um, that's when the hay is made in Canada because the rest of the time it's too cold to play outside, as you know. So, yeah, last weekend we were on in Duncan in Vancouver Island. Right. The weekend before that we were in Richmond Hill, Ontario. And Saturday we're going to be in Calgary. That's a lot of moving around. I mean, that's back and forth across the, from Duncan to St. John's. That's, that's about as far as you can go in this, pl- in this big country we call Canada. Yeah, I'm thinking that maybe our agent isn't looking at a map when he roots us. <laughs> I'm going to have to have a word with him about that. But um, we actually came out to Newfoundland a day early in order to get a full day off here because it's just such a beautiful city, such a fun town. And um, we've had a really good time here eating amazing seafood. Like, the yeah, so good here, right? St. John's is a great spot. It's yeah, yeah. it's a little, a little, a little space out of it. So you know, I always, Dave, I always think of you as the new guy in fifty four forty, and, and I realized it's been twenty years. That that says more years. about my age than anything else. But I'm still the new guy. <laughs> How is that? I mean, you're, you're obviously. I mean, you've been part of this band now. Then you're lo- longer than you were part of any other band. People always think yeah. of you as having been part of the other Vancouver acts that you were part of in the past. But um, it's been an interesting evolution for fifty four forty because it feels like you've really settled in to life with this band. Yeah, you know the. Th- it's funny because the band that's on the bill with us, it's just, it, it, they're they're a, a well known Canadian band, and we ran into the drummer last night as we were the four of us. We we're getting into a van to go check out the venue that we're playing tonight, and uh, the drummer came outside and he goes, "You guys go places together?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah, it's it's totally weird. We're an anomaly. We actually like each other. We 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 go on the road and we meet each other in the lounge and we have a drink and we talk about sports or politics or music or whatever. Or we eat together all our meals. I just finished dinner with Neil. We actually really enjoy each other's company. It's and it's an, a band that's been as long together as long as 5440, 43 years. That is a real outlier. And sure enough, I was in the I was in the uh restaurant just a few minutes ago and the other band on the bill was also in the restaurant and they were sitting at different tables on on either end of the restaurant we're kind of a a band in the true sense of one in that we're like we're good friends and we're we're like a gang now keep in mind that we all live in different we, we all live essentially on different islands out on the west coast i'm in i'm in vancouver but the other three guys are all on different islands so when we're off the road we don't see each other or on a text thread, but we, it's not like we hang out at home. So when you go on the road, it's a bit like well, it's a bit like a bit like going away for work, right? I mean, it, there is there is that camaraderie, and you see it by the way when you and Neil are interviewed together. You can see you can see that there's like there's an ease there that doesn't yeah. always exist in bands, right? My dad was in the music industry, so I know this. I know this kind yeah. of well. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a strain. I mean, being in a band is a strange is a strained and strange relationship because. You know, you're tr- you're trying to be creative partners. You're trying to be friends. You're trying to be business partners. It's a lot of pressure to put on a relationship between a couple of guys, and then you you throw on in unlimited beer, and um, things can get out of out of hand quickly. But we have managed to 
maintain a really, really great relationship over the 20 years that I've been in the band. And the other three original members are all still as close as they've ever been. As a matter of fact, I think closer because if when you've been doing it this long and you're still doing it, you just feel really, just really lucky that you're still able to do, you know, play a young man's game in your middle age. It's fun. I look forward to it. I look forward to every show. And I realize you've been working with, with, with Neil's daughter, I think, too, right? I mean, there's a whole bunch of different stuff going on that's kind of sprouted from 5440. Yeah. I mean, Candle is, is an amazing artist in her, in her own right. right. So I, do, I produce her when, when she asks. And when the phone rings and she needs a favor, I'm like, yep, no problem. I've got a tremendous amount of respect her, uh, uh, for her as an artist and as a person. And she's also the boss's daughter. So um, she gets <laughs> yeah. a deal. I, I was thinking about your, I was reading some articles about your dad earlier and what a great, I mean, I know the name and I, I, you know, I don't think I ever made, I must've made the connection, but without making the connection the way you do when you have to speak to someone about it and how you and you both, all, both of your siblings are in the arts. You, so are you yeah. and how you must've learned how to have a lifelong career in the arts by watching him work. The sort of the love of it takes over from the, the rush of being, you know, uber successful or the or the or the the mania of being out there and being in a band yeah my brother's a my brother's a, a director of film and television and my sister is a, is a visual artist mm-hmm. and they've done quite well in their in their respective fields themselves i think that you know growing up with an artist's father what we learned was that if you love what you do workaholism is not a bad word if you love what you do you get up and you you do it and you love it you know, when you're when you're in the arts, when you're in the creative field, hard work outweighs talent. Working hard towards it every single day, and that's that's really what we what we were taught is to to love what you do and work really really hard at it. Which must and allow it, you to do it well as you as you get older too, because that's the you know things change, life changes. You have more responsibilities, different responsibilities, but if you still learn to love what you do, you can continue doing it for years on end, even as it evolves. Yeah, I mean. Artists don't talk about retirement. No. Artists don't talk about what they're going to do when they retire. It's not something you think about. It's like, when is this, going to, when is this job going to stop so my real life begins? Well, this is our real lives. Yeah, retirement is a, is a weekend. I mean, we, you know, with the passing of Gordon Lightfoot this year, that sort of became, you know, the idea that you will play as long as you can very much came to light. Yeah, he had gigs on the books when he died. He did. Dave Genn of 5440 is with us this half hour from St. John's in Newfoundland where they're playing. We're talking about they have a pretty busy summer ahead with Calgary. The Parkland Summer Festival is coming up over the weekend. Then Canada Day, Canada Day near Edmonton in Spruce Grove. A big gig in August at the Elma Combo in Toronto, a famous place with a live album coming up. So lots to talk about in there. So some obvious festival gigs. And then the Elma Combo is going to be exciting, too. Yeah, we've actually have three releases this year. We we right. there, there was a re vinyl release of Smiling Buddha Cabaret for Record Store Day this spring. Now that record that's a record that came out in '94, right at the height of CDs. Mm-hmm. So it was actually only ever released in one format, CD. So this is the first vinyl release of that record, and incidentally, that is Neil's favorite 5440 record. Is it really? I always and wondered what that would be. Really, that one? Okay, mm. is Smiling Buddha. He just loves that record. And I think part of it is because they made some demos themselves in Vancouver and they flew down to L.A. and 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 had the record produced by a big time L.A. producer. And they ended up liking the demos that they'd made better and they released that record. So a lot of those the lot of the songs on that record, which includes Ocean Pearl, were recorded actually live off the floor in one take with the band playing live in a, in a, in a cheap in a cheap demo studio. Really? 
So that that release came out this spring, and we've got a live album uh, coming out. Um, it was recorded during COVID at the Elma Combo, so that comes out this summer. And then during COVID, we made a studio record as well called West Coast Band, and that will be out this fall. Oh, great. So and, and, yeah. It, it's, it's quite... A- it, it's an anomaly for a band that's been together as long as we are to still be creative, but it's the thing that keeps us challenged, keeps our, our fans challenged, but most importantly, it keeps us from getting bored. Right. I mean, you're still creating, right? Yeah. Still making records and still in love with the process of, of making records together. So I, I would imagine that, that over the course of these concerts this summer, that if your fans go out to see you, they're going to hear some old, some new, right? As you've often done in the past. Yeah. I mean... It's funny when I joined the band after a couple of years, I said to the guys, you know, you should write me, you should let me write the set list. And they're like, why? And I said, (laughs) because I'm a fan first. Right. I saw you guys 10 times before I ever joined the band. I love the band. I know what I want to hear. I want to know how I want to hear it. So I've been writing the set list for about 17 years ago and they never questioned them. That's a lot of power to hand over to the new guy. Well, yeah, I think so. But I think also I think that they were just so excited to have new blood and a new attitude and new energy. They were they were pleased with it. I mean, obviously they still have a say. And I, I ran the set list for tonight past past Neil before um, before I sent it to our road manager. But um, I just think that we try and throw throw newer songs in there to keep us interested and to keep it fresh. But fifty four forty has a big problem. We've got a lot of hit songs, and people want to hear them. So there's 12, 13 songs, I feel, that we have to play every night. And there's a, probably another five, six, seven that we should play every night. And we can't play them all. When we play our hometown shows at the Commodore every fall, we play longer. We'll play two hours, two hours, 15 minutes, and we'll, we'll get everything in, plus new stuff and some deep cuts. Right now, we're actually talking about a couple of deep cuts that we're going to get into the set later this summer. But these summer festival shows, a lot of the time, it's a multi-band bill. Our set might be a little shorter. Like tonight, we're playing 80 minutes. So we'll, we'll be slinging hits with a couple of new songs. Yeah, because, because what happens, I know, from having been to concerts now from bands that, I, that I've always really liked, is that there are songs, over the years, you start to realize that there are other songs on those albums that you actually liked more than the hits, that yeah. you liked. And, and, you, and the idea of hearing them live, which you probably never have, is one of the reasons why you keep going back to see the band, right? On the off chance that one day they're going to play that song. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> I saw The chance. Cure a couple of weeks ago when they played Killing an Arab, which they had oh, wow. 25 years ago, yeah. and it blew my mind. But uh, they also, I also knew that they were putting some sh- songs in, some deep cuts from earlier albums in and out of the set this summer. And I was a little upset that I missed some of the deep cuts they've been playing that they didn't put in the Vancouver show. So I totally understand. It's, 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 a, it's quite a fine line. And, but as, as I said, it's a good problem to have. <laughs> Yeah, it's better than having to play a, play your hit twice, which I've seen yeah. done, which I've seen done uh, over the years. Uh, well, Dave, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, good luck on the tour. And again, so it's Calgary over the weekend. Uh, you'll be in near Edmonton uh, for uh, Canada Day at Spruce Grove. Right. And then some big, all across the country, look out for something near you. And then, of course, the Elma Combo in August. And then the Commodore, that show that you must look forward to, all of you being from Vancouver uh, yeah. in, in the fall. Yeah, the thing about that venue is that, you know, I've played the best shows of my life there, but I've also seen the best shows of my life there. So it's just, it's, I think it's a religious experience for, for audience and, and band alike. Highly recommend it. Dave, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Wow, wow, wow.
this is this is a really <laughs> a bit of a this is a, a wild story coming up. Um, you may remember nearly a quarter quarter century ago, after the Berlin Wall fell, and it was sort of the Wild West in the former Soviet Union, um, and they were struggling to get through all that upheaval. That there were many who headed there to cash in on these markets that had been untapped under communist rule, and there was just boundless corruption going on at the same time as well as state assets were sold off for pennies on the dollar to friends of those in power and so on. If anything, that's how Vladimir Putin is still in power. Um, but it was a time when fortunes were made and there were a few foreign investors uh, who lost a lot of money as well because, of course, within a corrupt system where the rule of law doesn't work, you know, you, you can't depend on the law to back you up if there's some sort of dispute. That was the case for my next guest. Grand Chief Ron Derrickson uh, may have been born into relative poverty, but he made a fortune in forestry and real estate and elsewhere, becoming one of the most successful, uh, according to the book, one of the most successful indigenous businessmen in this country. Uh, as a political leader, he served as chief of the West Bank First Nation for a dozen years. He was made grand chief of the Union of British Columbia Indian Chiefs as well. Uh, so this is a savvy guy. He was no novice when he found himself in Ukraine at the turn of this century uh, at a wedding and decided to start investing there, seeing the opportunity that existed. So in 2001, he formed a Ukrainian-Canadian joint venture in agriculture called Unirem. Uh, they, you know, and, and it's going to sound familiar. I mean, if you've, I've been to Ukraine, I've been to that part of Ukraine, it looks a lot like the prairies, right? That, it's called the breadbasket of Europe for a reason. So he was growing wheat, sunflowers, canola, uh, over some 15,500 acres in uh, Dnipro Oblast, a name you might recognize from the news these days in the east of Ukraine. Before long, he says his company uh, was valued at some $28 million. Uh, it was stolen from him, he alleges. And his efforts to fight back and get it back were bogged down in a system riddled with corruption from A to Z. So he tells this whole story in a new book called Ukrainian Scorpions, A Tale of Larceny and Greed. And the timing of the release is no coincidence. The land uh, he was taken from him is now on the front lines of the war against Russia. And he says the fight against corruption is one the country has to win to survive and thrive as well. Grand Chief Ron Derrickson, owner and president of the RMD Group and author of Ukrainian Scorpions, A Tale of Larceny and Greed, joins me now. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Tell me a bit about how you wound up in uh, in Ukraine. I gather you were the best man at a wedding, and it sort of went from there. Because in the early yeah, part of this century, th this was not an easy place to do business. No, I, I didn't even know where Ukraine was, and I went over there to the best man of the buddy's wedding. And, you know, of course, they got married. Wasn't their honeymoon? I was standing on the street corner, wondering what the hell to do. So I went and got a an English magazine in Ukraine from Ukraine. And I hired an interpreter and spent a couple of weeks there and liked it. So I kept going back. I think a lot of people, I mean, in retrospect, everyone was aware of what a Wild West, uh, you know, the post-Soviet Eastern Bloc was for anyone doing business. You know, people were making a lot of money, but people were running into some serious issues as well. How eyes wide open were you when you started to invest in Ukraine? It was just like a big Indian reserve. <laughs> yeah. You know, wide open. Nobody knew what the hell they were doing over there. but. You know, as I got to know the country and the people involved in it, the, you know, they had the Soviet mentality, all of the population, because there were 70 years, 78 years under Soviet domination, a communist society. So it, it really uh, went down to whoever was the strongest, you know, could form his own army, could really take over any part of it they wanted to. 
so you did the the most sort of um you know it's called often called the breadbasket of Europe right and there's the the you know yeah. the land there is fertile and so you went into agriculture eventually tell me a bit about your project well you know agriculture has always been a thing I like and I met these people and one of the guys who was working for a major company in the United States and you know I I, I knew him and kind of trusted him didn't realize that every facet of Ukrainian society, no matter how small or how big, is stolen from. They set up committees as soon as you invest, and they, they try and get you on taxes. They make up taxes. I mean, from the fire marshal tax, if you want to change the door frame, it's all us to have a permit. They just work at you until you have nothing left. Then they defraud you. They put a bill against your property and get a, a judge in their pocket there. Yeah, but but you're not you're not you're you're no rookie to this. I just no. what, in looking through the story, I, no. I was thinking when you went into Ukraine in in the early part of this century, all of this must have been well known. You must have known exactly what you were getting into to some extent because everybody knew what was going on in Russia and Ukraine in terms of you know the the hangover of the corruption versus all the opportunity that was suddenly presented to those who well, had an inside track. Yeah, but you know when I went to Ukraine, I was doing real estate. Right. I was buying apartments, redoing them, and reselling them. That was a really good business. When you build something to where it gets worth millions and millions of dollars, then their eyes on taking it. So before, when I was doing an apartment, buy an apartment for thirty thousand, sell it for a hundred, nobody really saw it, so nobody bothered me. But with with the land, so I know from just from reading the story that, of course, you went in and you essentially set up uh, and tried to modernize agricultural production on on a fairly sizable chunk of land, and it was going pretty well until until it wasn't. Until all of a sudden, as you mentioned, someone uh, someone decided that uh, that they wanted what you had. I had no debt; everything was paid in cash, or you know, to the banks and stuff. I had no debt. And all of a sudden, my company was bankrupt. They bankrupted a company that had no debt. How does that work just to take over the assets under a new name, right? To sell the assets off once it was bankrupt? What they did was they put in phony debt, all phony. So you couldn't go to the police. You couldn't because they were all paid. Even the SFU has got involved and, and tried to find out where my money came from. Figured they could get rid of me by getting a ceases in Canada to, to, to uh, find I did something wrong one day. When ceases came to me and I said, well, sure, here's how I got my money. And that wasn't so they gave that up and they just stole it. But, you know, I, it's important. Every single phase of society from getting a birth certificate, a driver's license, to, to sign a contract, a notary, you got to pay a bribe. Yeah. Every single level. I mean, I've been there. I spent lots of time there. I mean, I don't think that's universally true, by the way. I think there are exceptions. I think it happened. Depends who you are, what you're doing. We've had to, you know, you know, clearly, clearly there are people who are targeted for this, for this kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the reasons why there was an uprising against the former, you know, the Putin puppets who they used to put in power in Ukraine was this, this right, this railing against the corruption because societies who are under the yoke of corruption. I mean, you know how bad it is. You were there. There wouldn't have been a takeover of Ukraine by Russia. If they'd have got the justice in line, and the courts in line, and the judges in line, right. they would have been a part of the European Union. 
Well, I, I, I'm, just, I'm not sure that that Russia ever wanted that to happen. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a chicken and an egg argument, isn't it, between the two? I mean, Russia never wanted Ukraine to get rid of the corruption. So they essentially, in many ways, and I, I agree that it was widespread, but they it's also made sure. It. It's even worse than Russia. Oh, for sure. The Chinese invested hundreds of millions into the forestry in, you know, the, the in, east of in Russia. Siberia, yeah, up around the Chinese Siberia. border. Yeah. And then they, they took it Once it got set up, they kicked the Chinese out. Well, that's what a kleptocracy looks like. Yeah. But, but but for you personally, I mean, this was a big loss. Uh, you did fight this through the courts. What happened? Well, in the end, I got a decision in my favor, but couldn't collect on it. I, I made a lot of money in Ukraine. And uh, so, you know, it was kind of a wash up. You know, I'm not going to cry about it. You know, you move on. You know, the Ukrainian people are nice people. I had good staff. I never had a staff member steal from me. So they were loyal and honest. So, you know, it's just a part of my life, 22 years of my life. Right now, I'm helping people escape from Ukraine, from the Russian side. Yesterday, we just got a a girl and her mother and father got them into Warsaw. Right. The uh, what about now? I mean, clearly, all eyes have been on Ukraine now for for more than a year. You know, nearly a year and a half at this point. When you look at what's happening there, how do you see it? Oh, it's it's probably one of the the saddest things ever that so many innocent people. And you know, anytime there's a a, a dictatorship country, it's the innocents who suffer. You know, people getting bombed. Death, death is taken over in Ukraine for both sides. It's awful. There's no good ending to this, right? I mean, no, and you, even you... the money that's going into Ukraine now is being stolen off. They can't help themselves. Right. Well, they I mean, I, I, they are they are clearly very cognizant of this. I mean, we were reading about people being arrested and people being let go, yeah. and and but you know, with the sheer amount of money going in. You know, there there is always a concern when that much money goes into a place at once, especially a place with with a sketchy with you know that has its past as Ukraine does. Uh, there's always concern about the accounting of it, right? I mean, I think uh, Vladimir Zelensky is well aware of this issue. Yeah, you know, he he's probably got the toughest job in the world. If there is a hero of Ukraine, it's him. But I guess he's an actor. Yes, and, indeed. I mean, he, yeah. he, he he took on a role like you can't believe. To watch him perform is an amazing. He's a miracle in himself. But you, know, you see, you see difficulties in in rebuilding a future Ukraine if corruption is still endemic. They, they've got seven hundred eighty billion dollars lined up for re- reconstruction. You don't think the government and all the the, the people in in high place are going to get their share of that more than their share? Well, we don't know, right? I mean, that that therein lies the fight for you for Ukraine. There's this there's this idealistic view that you could rebuild it in a way in the mirror of a European Union state where there's the rule of law, or you could turn it. It becomes slides into a, the kind you of kleptocracy what? that Russia is, right? And I believe in the tooth fairy too. Yeah, you don't think it'll ever change? Never change. It needs yeah. a couple more uh, generations. Right. The young people don't like it. I wonder. I wonder how tolerant a society that's losing its young, old, and its and its soldiers on the front lines. How tolerant that society will be of theft. You know, that may be. This may be the change. This may be the time it changes. God, I hope so. 
for their sake, I hope so. You know, I still got a summer home in Ukraine in an apartment there, right downtown. In Kiev. Yeah. And I yeah. got a summer home by the airport. Dutch, yeah. they call it. Yeah. Well, Grand Chief Derrickson, uh, the book is called Ukrainian Scorpions, A Tale of Larceny and Greed. Thanks so much for your time. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah, have a good day. 